Thank you, Father, that uh, you've given us your heart, that we could share in one heart with you, that we could know you, that we could see your love for us, that we could no longer be, be held by a spirit of fear, that we could find ourselves put to rest knowing your loving embrace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. The name of the message is a heart after God's own heart. Amazingly, I'm not even going to quote that verse in the uh, scriptures, and I'm not even going to talk about that person. There's actually so many scriptures you could talk about when you talk about a heart after God's own heart. But I just thought it was appropriate with what I'm going to talk about today. Um, and the, the, what I want to talk about is, is I don't want to say a continuation of Jared's message, but it kind of is. But, I've, you know, I've been meditating on what Jared said a couple weeks ago, I, I guess now, when he, he preached on uh, the resurrected God. And so I, I hadn't been able to get Ezekiel 36 out of my head. And so it stirred up a whole lot of things about Ezekiel 36 and a, a new heart and a new spirit and, and what it means to walk in the, the statutes and judgments of God. Like as Jared was preaching, it was like the Holy Spirit just come and spun all, those, all these things in the scriptures together for me from all these different directions. And I, I've probably talked about all this stuff, but I don't care. I get excited anew talking about the Lord. It don't matter how many different times I talk about the same thing from a different angle. And so I want to talk about a, a new heart and a new spirit and what it is to walk in the statute and, and judgments of God. Um, because we've all heard a lot of things about those things, right? And, and if you haven't, well, glory to God, you've been saved the pain. But I grew up in Christianity hearing a whole lot about a new heart and a new spirit. And the things that I heard, man, weren't exactly right. So we want to put those things in context, in the context of the scriptures, in the context of the, the New Testament, and um, see them in their proper light. And, and for people that like to study the scriptures, guys, the apostolic letters, they're not some new doctrine. They're not some new doctrine. The apostolic letters are the explanation or the expounding of the Old Testament scriptures. They are the expounding and explanation of Jesus' doctrine. Jesus taught from the Old Testament, right? And, and so the apostolic letters are not some new doctrine. They are the explaining of the doctrine that's in the Old Testament. It is a bringing out the doctrine that was always there that was shadowed from us by the carnal mind, right? That couldn't be seen because we were trying to understand the things of God by the spirit of a man, right? It's like Paul come and said that we've been given the spirit that we could know the deep things of God. And then he goes into this explanation of how can a man understand the things of a man save the spirit of man dwell in him? Well, how can a man understand the things of God save the spirit of God dwell in them? Right. Well, mankind was not understanding the doctrine that was in the Old Testament because the spirit of God was not dwelling in us. Now, you did have the spirit move upon people and they could see and prophesy of the spirit of the son. And that spirit of the son is contained throughout all the Old Testament scriptures, guys. But the apostolic letters, Paul, James, Peter, John, all those guys, the doctrine they are disseminating, if we want to call it that, has come from the Old Testament. That's where they're viewing it. And they're seeing the Old Testament in light of the Christ. 
that the Old Testament was always prophesying of. And now their eyes have been popped open. And so they're coming and giving explanation to what scriptures like Ezekiel 36 were always talking about. And they come and fill it out so we could see them properly. Okay, so we'll just read um, Ezekiel 36 and we're going to do some Bible study. Glory to God. Ezekiel 36. We'll start with verse 22. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen whither you went. Now, when he says he's not doing it for their sakes, but for his holy name's sake, he's not saying, well, I don't care about you guys. Who cares about you? I'm doing this for myself. What he's saying is, I'm not doing this because your works were good. I'm doing this because it's who I am. Okay? So don't get it twisted and think that you prayed right or that you fasted right or that you performed the works of the law right or that you got down on your knees right or that you tithed right or that you did anything right. That's not why I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because it's who I am. Right? That's the point he's trying to make there. He says, you profane my name among the heathen whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Man, when I used to read that word filthiness and think, I'm dirty. I need a bath. Right? Well, the scriptures talk about the filthiness of the flesh. And what it's talking about is the, the works that come out of the flesh when the flesh tries to produce life. The filthiness that he's saying he'll cleanse us from is he'll cleanse us from working or trying to produce life ourselves by the strength in our own hand. That's the filthiness he's talking about. So I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, right? Cleansed from the idols is to be cleansed from the filthiness. Idol, to give people a, a reminder, the definitions of idolatry, it means to worship the works of your own hands. You built a God with your own hands and you say, by the thing I've built with my own hands, I'll be exalted. That's what it means to have an idol. You're worshiping the strength in your own hand. You're fornicating with your own works instead of having intimacy with the work of God. That's what it means to have an idol. Okay, You're looking to something for peace and love and joy other than God. That's what it means. Okay, I will cleanse you from that. I will cleanse you from looking to something other than me for life. Notice how he says, I will. He doesn't tell you to cleanse yourself from looking for something else for life. So if you find yourself in the place where you're looking to the world for life, God doesn't demand you to stop doing that. But what God does is, is he gathers you to his house. He brings you into his bedroom and he says, well, you sit here, child, and listen to me, right? Listen to what I've done. Because when you can hear and see what I've done to serve you with peace and love and joy, when you can sit in here of the work that I've done to perfect your life and to exalt your life above the tribulation in this world, what will happen is, is it will cleanse your heart from everything else you're looking to. Because when God fills you up, what happens is, is there's no more room for there to be any more filling up. 
It's like a running over, right? My cup runneth over. And so when you can sit in the presence of God and you can hear about the work that he's done, which is exceedingly abundantly above all you could ever ask or think, to serve you with a peace and a love and a joy that can't be taken from, that can't be stolen from, that can't come behind no matter what you encounter, no matter who you encounter. Most of us are living in the world as if there's people that can keep us from peace. Listen, if there's a person in your life that can keep you from peace, you ain't busy with God's peace. You're busy with the peace the world offers. And there's no shame in that. But come and hear about the work God has done to exalt your life to the place where it can't be harmed, it can't be stolen from, it can't be overcome. Right? Come and sit in the presence of God. I will, will, I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, for those of you that like Bible study and you want to go back and study these things, you can't really understand Ezekiel 36 without combining Deuteronomy 6, without combining Romans 8, without combining uh, Hebrews 8 and 10. If you don't take those things and bring them into the picture and use all those things to understand what's going on in, in Ezekiel 36, you won't come out with the right conclusion. You won't see what it's talking about. Um, for, for example, if, if you look in Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 talks about God writing his law on our hearts and in our minds, right? So that uh, what will happen is, is that we'll know he's our God and we're able to live in the earth as his people. Right? That's the same thing Ezekiel's talking about when it says he'll give us a new heart and a new spirit so that we will know he's our God and we will live as his people. It's the exact same thing that he says there. Deuteronomy 6 talks about God or talks about the Israelites having one God, the Lord their God, and not worshiping the works of their own hands. Well, that's the exact same thing Ezekiel 36 says when God says, I will sanctify my name and take out of you a stony heart and give you a heart of flesh that will cause you to walk in my statutes and my judgments so that you can inherit the land I gave to your fathers. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 6 says, right? That you shall have one God, the Lord your God. You shall walk in my statutes and my judgments and that you can inherit the land that I promised your fathers. It's the exact same thing that he uses there. Hebrews 10 Go read Hebrews 10. It talks about our hearts being sprinkled from an evil conscience and us having a true heart of faith and our bodies being washed with pure water. That's the same thing Ezekiel 36 talks about when it talks about the sprinkling of clean water and us being washed with the word with, from our filthiness. It's the exact same thing that he's talking about in all those places. So you want to look at those things and you want to bring them together. Now just to give some historical background with God and his life with mankind, particularly with the Israelites. I love telling God's story. It's like it's time for the story, God. I mean, what do you guys think God was always after with Israel? Why do you think God chose Israel? You think it's because he liked them better than other people? Does that sound like God who says he's not a respecter of persons? I mean, we sit in one breath, especially in America. We say God's not a respecter of persons, but then we say he respects uh, Israel after the flesh more than every other person. <laughs> and we never realize what we're talking about, right? We never stop and think, well, those two thoughts don't line up. 
I'm so sorry that I recognize when thoughts don't line up. And then I point it out. <laughs> I'm not really, but I mean, I like, I like hone in on those things. So I want everybody to understand what God was after with Israel when he chose Israel. All right. The thing God was after with Israel from the beginning is that he wanted for his name to be sanctified in the eyes of all people. That's what he wanted. When he chose Israel, he wasn't just thinking he wanted something for Israel. He was thinking, I want my name to be sanctified in the eyes of all people. And what he means by that is he wanted his self, he wanted to be set apart in the eyes of the world as the lover of our lives. He wanted to be set apart in our eyes as father as the one who's taken thought to care for our lives, as the one who saves from sin and death and serves with an incorruptible life. He wanted to be known that way in the world by all people. That's what he sat with in his heart desiring. Wanted the world to see that he's the father they need. That's what it means for God to sanctify his great name. That's what it means for God's name to be sanctified. It means for it to be shown that God's the father that you need. And when you think about needing a father, what you're thinking about is you desire life. You desire protection. You desire your life to be guarded, to be kept. You desire your life to be lifted up. You desire your life to be saved from harm. You desire to have peace and love and joy. You desire for life to be provided to you. You desire for the provision that can give you life. Well, God's like, well, hallelujah. Because I can do those things and I want to do those things for you. And I'm going to take Israel and I'm going to use Israel to sanctify my name in your heart. I'm going to use Israel to manifest myself as father in the midst of the great congregation, which is the earth. And even though Israel never saw this about God, God still used Israel to sanctify his great name in the earth. Because when Israel didn't know him, when they didn't see him, when they couldn't minister who he was to the world, Jesus Christ came according to Israel after the flesh. And in Israel having a hard heart to God, in Israel not knowing God as father, they took the king of glory and crucified him. And do you know what they did when they crucified the king of glory? They said God's the one who did it. They were defiling the name of God in the midst of the heathen. But God sanctified his great name because God showed up as the father of this human that looked like he was despised by God. And he took that human up out of the grave and raised that human in a glorified body that can never die again. He sanctified his name. Right? Here was Israel blaspheming the name of God in the midst of the heathen, defiling the name of God. Do you know what they were saying? God's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. God's the one stealing and killing and destroying this man, Jesus. And God showed up, not as the giver of death, but as the giver of life. And he sanctified his name. Right? So if you go back in Ezekiel, chapter 16, God talking with Israel when they were in bondage to Egypt. Right? When they were suffering at the hands of Pharaoh. When they were not a people. God walked, it says, Ezekiel 16 says, Behold, I walked by you when you were in your blood. And he says, when I saw you in your blood, my heart was filled with love. What it means when he walked by them in their blood, he found them when they were dead in sin. And he says, when I found you dead in sin, I loved you so much that I spread my skirt over you. 
I didn't despise you for being dead in sin. I didn't despise you for the blood you were in, but rather I joined myself to you in your blood so that I could decorate you in the fruit of my life, which is what a husband would do for the wife in ancient days. They would decorate their wife in the fruit of their house or the fruit of the life they had, their provision. And so when God talks about spreading his skirt over them, that's marriage language. And he's saying, I found you when you were dead in your sin. I didn't despise you when you were dead in your sin because I know that I'm the giver of life and the one that saves from sin and death. So I joined myself to you in your blood so that I could exalt you, so that I could decorate you in the fruit of my life. This is a story he's telling in Ezekiel. And he's telling the story of his history with Israel. And he's trying to tell the world about their story with him. And he's using Israel to do it. Right? So what God wanted to do is he wanted to take a people that were not esteemed as anything in the eyes of the world. He wanted to take a people that the world looked at and thought there was nothing of beauty to behold. Just like it says about Jesus. It says that the world looked at Jesus and didn't see anything of beauty to behold. The world looked at Jesus and didn't esteem Jesus at all. In fact, he looked like the weakest of all human beings. He looked like Lazarus on the side of the road with sores being licked by a dog. That's why God wanted to take him to demonstrate the goodness in his heart to the world. And so God took Israel because the world said Israel is so weak they're so little, they're so pathetic, we're not even going to acknowledge them as a people. We're not even going to look at them as a people. They're so weak, we're not going to do anything with those people. They're not even a people. We won't even say they're a nation. And so God took Israel because they looked like the least of all the people. And the thing he said was, they're so weak, no one can confuse the greatness that will come out of them for their own strength. They'll have to acknowledge that it's my strength. That's why he picked them. Right? So he took them, and what he said was, I'm going to exalt these same people the world rejects by the strength of my hand, and I'm going to exalt them to a city on a hill where they can shine like a light, and they can declare my love and the strength in my hand to conquer sin and death to the world. Because there'll be no other way that they could be exalted if not by my hand. Right? Same thing with Jesus, right? I mean, you're in the grave. How much worse can it be? I mean, no one's confused thinking that the guy came out of the grave himself. Clearly, God had to bring him out of the grave. Right? Now, what happened that Ezekiel's talking about is Israel didn't walk in the statutes and judgments of God. They committed adultery on God, is what the Scripture says. What the Scripture would go on to say is they went a-whoring after other gods. They had other gods besides the Lord their God. They fornicated with the strength of the flesh. They loved the world. They looked to the corruptible things in the world and lusted after life through those things. This is what Israel did after God joined himself to them and decorated them in his life. They worshipped the works of their own hands for life. Israel did. And because they did that, they served themselves with death and destruction. They paid themselves with death and destruction. They heaped death and destruction upon themselves in the midst of the great congregation. That is the world. The world is the great congregation. And what Israel did is they rejected the Lord their God and they worshiped the works of their own hands. 
And the wage that your own works have to pay you with is death and destruction. So they serve themselves with death and destruction, and there they are being destroyed and in death in the midst of the whole world. Right? Now listen, that's a big problem for God in his desire to minister his goodness to the whole world. Because do you know what the whole world thought about Israel? They're the people of Yahweh. So then, what the world did, they did the same thing Israel did with Jesus on the cross. They saw the death and destruction that manifested in Israel, and because Israel was the people of Yahweh, they assumed the death and destruction that came upon Israel came by the hand of God. And so what they said was, the gift their God will pay, or the gift their God has in his hand to give, is death and destruction. That's how his name was defiled in the midst of the heathen. Because they looked at the death and destruction that came upon Israel. They looked how they were scattered. They looked how they were overcome. They looked how they were taken captive. And they said, well, who wants anything to do with their God? Look what happens to people that worship their God. They blamed God for the hell that came alive in Israel instead of seeing Israel was worshiping the works of their own hands. And that's why hell came upon them. You see? So that's what's going on when it talks about God's name being defiled, right? Because these people are, are, are claiming Yahweh, but now they're like full of death and destruction. So who wants to worship a God who serves with death and destruction? But God wanted these people to see he was father. He wanted these people to see the gift he has in his hand is eternal life. But now they looked at Israel and they blamed the death that manifested on Israel on Yahweh. And so Yahweh's name was defiled in their eyes. They didn't see God as the father that they needed. You see what I'm saying? So God, what God comes and does there is that's when God says through Ezekiel, I will sanctify my great name. I will sanctify my name from that, is what he comes and says. As Jared so beautifully said in his message on the resurrected God, God had to be lifted up in our sight. He had to be exalted in our eyes. He needed to be exalted so we could receive strength from him to walk in his statutes and his judgments. And I'm going to get to what statutes and judgments mean at the end of the message, but spoiler alert, walking in his statutes and judgments means to cry out Abba. His judgment and his statute is, I am the father that you need. That's his judgment in his statute, right? Now, we need strength to see him as the father that we need. And so that's what he's talking about here with Ezekiel. I'm going to sanctify my name in the midst of the people that don't see that I'm the father that they need. I'm going to manifest myself as the father that they need, and that will strengthen them to cry out, Abba. That will strengthen them to walk in my statutes and my judgments. If you go and read in Deuteronomy 6, it talks about walking in the statutes and judgments of God. And you know what actually says that it says that that is? to have one God, the Lord your God. And then it describes having one God, the Lord your God, as not worshiping the works of your own hands. It talks about your fear being before God and not your own strength. It means for God's life and God's grace and God's strength to be lifted up in your sight, where you stand in awe of the goodness in his heart to serve you with life. 
and your own works and the death in the world is not lifted up in your heart. And you don't stand in awe of the death because you see God has disrespected death in your midst. God is the father that you need. You need a life that can't be overcome by death. You need a life that actually overcomes death. So you need a father that has a life that overcomes death. And you see in God, he has a life that overcomes death. And when you see that he's the one that has a life that overcomes death, what happens is, is you call him father because that's what you need. That's what walking in the statutes and judgments of God is. So God is like, I'm going to sanctify my name. So he's got to do something to sanctify his name, which takes us to the, one of the verses Jared talked about in his message on the resurrected God. He quoted Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. And so God says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, this is him talking about how he's going to sanctify his name, right? God says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, I will send forth a law out of Zion. And he says this law that I send forth out of Zion, what it's going to do is it's going to gather all nations to the mountain of the Lord. It's going to gather people to him. It's going to draw people to him because this law that I send forth out of Jerusalem is going to sanctify my name in the midst of all the world. And when they see me for who and what I really am, they come into my house. Right? They come in home. I mean, I use this example a lot, but when Becky and I first moved here and started the church, we're staying with my parents. Now, Becky loves my parents. And she knows they're the kindest, sweetest people that could be. But when we were staying in my parents' house, Becky did not want to go and get in their refrigerator. She didn't want to go get in their cabinets because, you know, it's their stuff, right? But listen, what do you think I was doing? Like I was up in their refrigerator. What you got? I got the freezer and the refrigerator open. I'm all up in there. I'm even receiving air conditioning from the freezer. Yes, that's nice. I'm in their cabinets looking for food. Man, Becky was like, you can't do that. Oh, I'm like, yes, I can. My parents' name has been sanctified in my heart, right? I see that they're the parents that I need. I see the provision that I need for life. I see it's contained in their house. So it drew me to their house. It drew me to them. That's the same thing God says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. My name is in need of being sanctified in the earth. Israel never knew me. And so my name was defiled amongst the heathen. They saw me as the, the destroyer. They saw me as the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. But I'm not the destroyer. I'm not the punisher. I'm the healer. I'm not the death giver. I'm the life giver. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send forth a law out of this same Jerusalem, out of Zion. And this law will sanctify my name in the midst of the great people. Now listen, guys. I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus is the law Isaiah was prophesying that would come out of Zion that would come out of Jerusalem. And it's not just Jesus, like we think of a historical Jesus, the man Jesus. Yes, that's part of it. But what it's talking about is the cross and the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus is the law that God says will come out of Zion. The word made flesh in Jesus's death and in Jesus's resurrection is the truth that brings to light who God really is. That's what God is saying in Isaiah. I'm going to gather everybody to myself because I'm going to send out a law in the death and resurrection of my Christ that is going to sanctify my name. It's going to bring to light the truth about the love I have in my heart for all people. That's why Jesus would go on to say in John 17, glorify me that I will glorify you. 
Jesus could have just as easily said, sanctify me from this body of death, and that will sanctify you in the eyes of the people. He could have just as easily said that. When the, the people see me nailed to the tree, and they, because Jesus was all the time calling upon the name of the Lord in the midst of the people. Don't you realize that? Just like Israel. Israel was always saying Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then all that came upon them was death and destruction. So they blamed Yahweh for the death and destruction. Well, Jesus was walking around claiming Yahweh. He was walking around claiming God. And now all of a sudden, this guy that claimed God is nailed to a tree. And so the people did the same thing the heathen did. They, you worship God, where is he now? And Isaiah says they looked at Jesus nailed to a cross and they esteemed that he was smitten and stricken by God. And so there's Jesus dying on the cross. The people all thought that was the hand of God that was killing him on the cross. The people all thought this is the fruit that comes forth from Yahweh's hand. This is the fruit of Jehovah that's come upon this guy. Well, Jesus says when I'm in the place of dying on the cross... Come and sanctify me from the body of death, and that will sanctify you in the eyes of the great congregation. It will reveal that the gift you have in your hand to give is not death. The gift you have in your hand to give is eternal life. That will manifest you as father in the midst of the great congregation. You hear that? This is what Ezekiel's busy with. This is what he's prophesying of. He's prophesying of God's great name being sanctified. And in his great name being sanctified, it's going to give us a new spirit and a new heart. Right? Now listen, guys. The new spirit and the new heart Ezekiel talks about is akin to the law that came out of Zion. It's, just, it's one and the same. The word that was made flesh in Jesus in the cross and the resurrection is the new heart and the new spirit. That's why God says in Hebrews 8, I will write my law on their hearts and in their minds. The law that came out of Zion that God writes on our hearts, do you know what that law is that he writes on our hearts? I preached a message a long time ago about it, and you could simply put it like this. The law he writes on his hearts is that he provided himself as a lamb that perfects us from the death in the world. He did a work to cleanse us from the death that's in the world. That's the law he writes on our hearts, not by the works of our own hands, but by the might in his hand. That's the law he come and writes on our hearts. Now, there's a whole lot of implications in that simple little statement. And so the, when you think of that, and when you look at the law that came out of Zion, it's like I just said, the law God writes on our hearts do you know what it is? It's that he's not the author of the death that was destroying us. That's the law he writes on our hearts. He's not the author of the death that was destroying us. I, I don't want to keep mentioning Jared, but I will. Do you know how we know God's not the author of the death that was destroying us? Like we all concluded? I mean, they concluded, look at Jesus. He called upon God. Look how God nailed him to the cross. Do you know how we know that he's not the author of the death that was destroying us? Well, as Jared said, he, God himself came into the earth in the person of Jesus. And he suffered at the hands of the same death we suffered at. 
How can he be the author of the death when here he is being destroyed by the death also? So the death we said he was serving us with, he showed up in the earth, and then that same death now come upon him. How can he be the one giving the death if now he's suffering at the hands of the same death we were suffering with at the hands of? <laughs> it's like, wait a second. You're looking around and you're like, wait a second. I, I, I thought this came from you, but here you are and it's on you too. Okay. Then it can't be you. It can't be you. The law that came out of Zion, like I just said, is God provided himself a lamb. Do you know what that means? He submitted himself unto our sin. He humbled himself unto our death, Philippians 2 would say. He humbled himself unto our death. He made himself vulnerable to us. He made God, made himself vulnerable to us. If you think you struggle to be vulnerable with people, don't despise yourself and don't continue to live that way. Talk to the God that made himself vulnerable to us and ask him how he did that. How did you make yourself vulnerable in the hands of a people that were going to nail you to a tree? Because I find something in me that when someone's coming to nail me to a tree, I want to protect. So just talk to him. He's father. If you... If you desire to be able to be vulnerable with people, well, talk to the father that was vulnerable himself. He made himself vulnerable to us. What I mean by that is he allowed himself to be stripped naked. He absorbed our death into himself so he could overcome the death in our flesh and go and get us the coat of his indestructible life. That's what the Sermon on the Mount says, right? If someone comes and steals your, your coat, go back to your house and get your other one and give it to him too. Well, we stripped God naked. We stole his coat. And do you know what he did? He humbled himself. He allowed us to strip him naked so he could go and get us the coat of his indestructible life. <laughs> uh, the law that came out of Zion says the gift God has to give, the gift God has in his hand to give is a life that superabounds over sin and death. Because that's what we see manifested in the man Jesus. He cried out, Abba. And what's the next thing we see about this man Jesus? He comes out of the grave and glorified immortal flesh that can never taste weakness or death or sin ever again. Do you know what that's supposed to testify to us? The only thing God has in his hand to give. That starts to sanctify his name. Right? That, all those things I just described, that's the new heart and the new spirit God says he'll give us. The truth that manifested in Jesus and that's contained in the Holy Spirit, that's the new heart and the new spirit God said he would give us. And what that does is, is it sanctifies God's name in our hearts by revealing he's the lover of our lives, not the destroyer of our lives. So the new heart and the new spirit, you could simply say it as this. We see God as the lover of our lives instead of seeing God as the destroyer of our lives. The old heart, the old spirit, was a spirit of fear, where we saw God as the destroyer of our lives. We didn't see God as the lover of our lives. The new spirit is the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, Abba. You don't cry out, Abba, to someone that you think is the destroyer of your life. In fact, you'll stop claiming that guy as your father. We see it in the world all the time. 
with kids that think their fathers destroyed their lives. I'm not calling that man dad. He's not my father. You don't call someone father that you think is the destroyer of your life. We needed a new spirit that saw God was the lover of our life and not the destroyer. That's the new spirit and the new heart Ezekiel prophesies about God giving us, right? In that revelation is the grace to cry out Abba. You have to see he's the lover of your life to call him Abba. You can't see he's the lover of your life unless he shows you. He doesn't tell you to just trust he's the lover of your life. He shows you by coming and raising up Jesus, the man that was joined together in your life, your death, and raising that man up, he shows you he's the lover of your life. Right? You know, for many years, I thought the new heart and the new spirit was only a mystical thing. And don't get me wrong, there is something mystical about it, and many people have different definitions of the word mystical. If you're confused about what mystical means, message me, I'll send you a definition. <laughs> but for many years, I only saw it as a mystical thing where what I thought was, I need a new physical heart. And I need a new physical spirit. And that my heart and my spirit had to be replaced. And the reason it had to be replaced is because I'm just despicable and rotten. That's what I thought it was all about. I'm despicable and rotten. And so what I thought was, I'm ugly to God, right? He like can't stand to look at me because I'm so ugly. And what he's going to do is he's going to give me a new heart and a new spirit so I can now be beautiful to him. That was the extent of what I thought about it. I thought it was all about just saying I have a new heart, right? I thought the power was in just saying I have a new heart. And what I meant by that is God likes me now. God's for me now because I have a new heart. My whole premise is what I'm a despicable, disgusting worm. And so God gave me a new heart so he can tolerate me. My whole premise behind God giving me a new spirit and a new heart was so that he could want to be with me. He couldn't stand to be in the room with me. And so he replaced my ugly heart and he replaced my ugly spirit so he could tolerate me. That would mean what he did was for his benefit, not yours. And we got all this from like really bad spirit, soul, and body teaching. Where there is a verse that talks about spirit, soul, and body. But there's one verse. Right? And we don't understand the new spirit and the new heart. And because we only think of, because, because I was in the place where I'd always just say, I have a new heart. I thought the power was just in, I have a new heart. But then I never knew what the new heart was. I never knew what the new spirit was. I just said, I have a new spirit. Hallelujah. But then I still had idols. I was still walking after the flesh. I was still looking to the things in the world to serve me with peace and love and joy. Because I didn't see what the new heart and the new spirit was. I just said, I have a new one. And the reason why I had to have a new one, because God couldn't stand me. I didn't see that it was God loving my life and wanting to save me from my sin. I didn't see that the heart that I had was carnal and that it was looking to the world for life and that it was condemning me to death. God gave you a new heart and a new spirit, not so he could like you. He gave you one because he does like you. 
He gave you one because he thought of you dying. It rent him in the deepest part of his being. And he said, let it never be so. And he said, the only way these people will be saved from the sin and death that come upon them is if they can see I'm the lover of their life. I need to give them a heart that isn't hardened to my love. I need to give them a heart that isn't blinded to my goodness towards them. I need to give them a heart that can see there's only love in my heart. That's what will cause them to call upon me. I need to give them a heart that when they see me, they're coming running to me instead of running away from me. I need to give them a spirit that that spirit will be the spirit of adoption, whereby they see nothing can separate them from my love. And they call upon Abba. You see that? The new heart and the new spirit is about God sanctifying his image in your heart. His image. Ezekiel says his name was defiled. It's about him sanctifying his name in your heart. It's not about him sanctifying your name to him. It's about him sanctifying his name to you. (laughs) God's not the one that has a problem. He came looking for Adam. Adam was the one with the problem. What was Adam's problem? The way he saw God. (laughs) Right? That's what it means that God sprinkled clean water on us. That's why it says that. That's why it says he washed our bodies with pure water. The pure water is the word that was made flesh in Jesus. So we all the time, I tell you what, the body of Christ is great at Christian cliches. We know all the cliches. We profess them out of our mouth all day long, but we have no idea what any of them mean. And then when someone comes explaining what they mean, we despise that. It's evil to understand. We don't need to understand. We just have a new heart. Oh, yeah, what is it? I don't know, but we just have one. Oh, man, glory to God. And then people walking around still walking after the flesh, and they don't even realize it because they don't know what the new heart is. Oh, man. He washed our bodies with the pure water of the word that was made flesh in Jesus. Listen, guys, what that means is he cleansed our hearts from idols. It means he put our flesh to rest. He cleansed our hearts from a life of working to try and gather peace and love and joy to ourselves. He cleansed our hearts from that kind of a life. That's why the letter to the Hebrews says God sprinkled our hearts from an evil conscience. It's no accident that this Hebrew letter written to Hebrews uses the word sprinkle when Ezekiel uses the word sprinkle. And the author of Hebrews comes and describes the sprinkling of the heart as it being cleansed from an evil conscience. What is an evil conscience? Notice it doesn't say the conscience itself is despicable to God. The evil conscience is a conscience that is filled with its own working to try to gather life to itself. The evil conscience is what those people in that letter to the Hebrews had. They were trying to perfect themselves from sin and death by performing the works of the law still. They were doing all the rituals in the law. They were performing the sacrifices in the law. They were doing the baptisms in the law. They were going through all the steps in the law. That's an evil conscience. A conscience filled with what you're going to do to sanctify yourself from sin and death is an evil conscience. And God sprinkled us. 
He sprinkled our hearts from that conscience. He cleansed our hearts from us worshiping our own works to be perfected from sin and death. And the way that he did that is he manifested his work in our midst. And the work he manifested in our midst is exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. Because I promise you, listen, when Paul saw Jesus, the glorified man Jesus on the road to Damascus, listen, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He never imagined that the scriptures were testifying of God himself making man his temple. He never imagined that the resurrection from the dead talked about God himself manifesting his immortality inside of a physical body. And so those guys in Hebrews, when they were busy working to cleanse themselves from sin, do you know what they were hoping for? A nice suit. They were hoping to have money in the world. They were hoping to be accepted in the congregation. They were hoping to have the riches that the world could offer. Well, now God comes and does a work that is so far and above what they were ever thinking or asking because they never imagined they would be the temple of God. Do you know how much they esteemed the temple? I mean, they thought the temple was the most powerful thing in the whole world. That's the place where God showed up. Now, all of a sudden, God comes and does a work where he makes us his temple. And he's going to stand up inside of our mortal bodies and glorify them with immortality. And we're going to walk around with the fullness of God in us. And we got to spot a seat in the Godhead. My goodness, when you see the work that he did, when you're busy trying to just have some money for groceries, what happens is, is your heart is sprinkled from an evil conscience. You're no longer working to try to perfect your life from the world. You see what he done to perfect you once for all time. You have a new heart. You have a new spirit. Your heart's been sprinkled from an evil conscience like Ezekiel prophesied. Notice God said, I will sprinkle. What did he do to sprinkle? Don't just say he sprinkled. Ask yourself, what does it mean that he sprinkled? Don't just say you have a new heart. Ask yourself, what is the new heart? Don't just say I have a new spirit. Ask yourself, what is the new spirit? Do you know what I was taught when I asked the, the well-intentioned people? Well, what does it mean that I have a new spirit? Well, what it means is that your spirit was just despicable and God hated it. And so he gave you a new one. Now listen, being free and looking back, I could see that the spirit of fear was despicable to God. But that didn't mean the spirit part of my design was despicable to God. What it meant was the spirit of fear that's from the world that had gotten in there, into my spirit part of my design, was despicable to God. Do you know why it was despicable to God? Because it was killing me. And it was causing me to see him as the author of the destruction that was coming upon me. It was causing me to look at God. And instead of seeing there was love in his heart, I would find something in him that I thought was to be afraid of. And just like the first man, Adam, I would cower away from God. You're right. It was despicable to God that he couldn't hang out with me. I remember when I was a little boy and I would go to my friend's house. And I would really want to pray, play with my friends. But his mom would come to the door sometimes and say, Joe can't play today. He hasn't done his chores. Man, and I despised that because I really wanted to play with Joe. It was evil to me that Joe couldn't play. Does that mean Joe was evil? No. Right? 
That's how it was with God. He wanted to play. He wanted to be with us. He wanted to paint with us, to skip with us, to sing with us, to dance with us, to eat with us, to dwell with us, to dwell in us. But there was a spirit in us that couldn't see all the goodness in his heart towards us. We had a different spirit that when we looked at him, we saw that this guy does not like me. <laughs> and so we ran away from him. Right? That's what the stony heart is. In Ezekiel, the stony heart is the spirit of fear. See, Paul, go read Romans 8. If Paul stopped every time he said something to tell you exactly what he was expounding on, he would have never gotten through any of his letters. And even some of the letters where he busts open the doctrine, man, we're like, when's this letter going to be over? How much does this guy have to say? You guys feel like that while I'm preaching. I understand. Uh, the things had to be, have to be saved. So we had a stony heart. We had the spirit of fear that was keeping us from being put to rest. Our hearts were hardened to God's love for us. That kept us from being able to walk in God's statutes and his judgments. And just to give another picture of what the stony heart is, a stony heart is akin to the carnal mind. A stony heart is a heart that can't comprehend God's goodness. It's a heart that when it sees God, it doesn't see that he's only filled with goodness towards you. It sees something in him that makes you think you ought to be afraid of what this guy's going to do to your life. He's going to strip you naked. He's going to condemn you. He's going to smite you. That's the carnal mind. That's the stony heart. It can't see, right? If you look at the first man, Adam, I just described the stony heart in Adam. What was the stony heart that was in Adam? He looked at his nakedness and he thought God would condemn him. He couldn't see that what God would do was clothe him. You know what the gift God had to give Adam? It wasn't destruction. It was a lambskin. <laughs> God had a lambskin to give Adam. But Adam didn't look at God and see that God would give him a lambskin. Adam looked at God and thought God is going to smite him. In fact, he thought God was the one that stripped him naked. When he saw his nakedness, when he saw the death that manifested in his body, when he saw the body of death that came upon him, he concluded, God's the one that did this to me. And it's no, it's no, it's no, like, it's not like, how did that happen? Because I remember when we first started the church, I had to preach a whole message about how God wasn't the one that cursed Adam and Eve. And when I said that 10 years ago, everybody's like, what do you mean God didn't curse Adam and Eve? We still had a stony heart, yet here we are, Christianity, 2,000 years later. We all say we have a new heart and a new spirit. All the while, we still living by the stony heart. All the while, we still living by the carnal mind. All the while, we have a new spirit. We say we have a new spirit, yet we still have in our steps ordered by the spirit of fear. person with the stony heart is in bondage to try to grab their life to themselves. The reason why they're in bondage to that kind of a life is because they can't see the goodness of God to serve them with life. The new heart God gives us is what, is he, or, or, or what uh, Hebrews says when it says we have a true heart of faith. That's the new heart, a true heart of faith. That's the heart Ezekiel talks about 
You know what it says that God will give us? A, he will take out of our flesh a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That word that, that is translated flesh in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that word is kindred. means he'll give us a heart that's the same as his heart. Which is why the name of the message is a heart after God's own heart. <laughs> God knows real clearly the only thing that's in him is to love your life. But you don't know real clearly. So what he says is, is I'm going to rip my heart out of my chest. I'm going to put it on display. And then I'm going to pour out of myself my heart through the Holy Spirit so my heart can dwell in them. And just as I know my intention is only good towards them, they'll begin to know that my intention is only good towards them. A heart that is kindred after my own heart. God gave us his own heart that we might see the only gift he has to give us is eternal life. That we might see the only thing he has to give us is the life of his lamb and that we would call upon his name. That's why he does it. And listen, that's what Romans 1 says. When it says that herein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. You see what Paul's saying there? That God's righteousness towards me had been revealed through the faith that was in his heart. And now that faith that was in his heart has become my faith. That's the true heart of faith. And that's why Hebrews 11 goes on to say, without faith it's impossible to please God. And you know what it goes on to say about that? It says you ain't coming to God unless you see there's a reward waiting for you when you get there. We had a stony heart that couldn't see there was a reward for us in the presence of God. We thought there was punishment for us in the presence of God. God manifested his righteousness towards our life so that the faith that was in his heart, which is that he knew he had a reward to give us, could now dwell in our hearts and we would see there's a reward waiting for us in the presence of this guy and then no one could stop us from coming to him. We'd be knocking people out of the way trying to get to this God. Which in Seinfeld, right? I mean, my friend George Costanza in Seinfeld. I don't know if you guys saw the one where he was at a children's party and there was a fire alarm that went off in the building. Well, my man George, it's like he realized there was a reward waiting for him with God. He trampled over all the women and children to get out the door first. I promise you, when the faith of God dwells in your heart and you begin to see what he sees, which is the gift he has in his hand to give you, is a life that can't die, a life that overcomes the world, you'll be pushing fools out of the way trying to get there. Nothing can stop you from coming to him. That's what God's trying to get in you. When he says, I'll give you a new heart, he's saying, I'll give you my faith. That's why Jesus says in Matthew, have the faith of God. That's the new heart, the faith. God says in Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, I will give you a new spirit, and that spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes and my judgments. We've already decided that means that will cause us to live right. <laughs> that will cause me to be a good little boy. That will cause me to be a good little girl, and I'll now love everybody perfectly. I'll now do everything perfectly. That's what it means to walk in the statutes and judgments of God. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself whether or not you see that correctly? I mean, what is God talking about when he says that he will cause you to walk in his statutes and his judgments? Remember, he, he begins that statement by saying, I will give you a new spirit. And that spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes and my judgments. Deuteronomy 6, 
Do you know what Deuteronomy 6 says about the statutes and judgments of God? I promise you, it ain't no thou shouts and thou shalt nots. Do you know what it says about what the statutes and judgments of God are? You shall have one God, the Lord your God. You shall not worship the works of your own hands. Full stop, period. That's what Deuteronomy 6, do you know know what it goes on to say? That God and his grace would be lifted up in your heart and not your own works will be lifted up in your hearts. Let's just read it together. And, And before we get to that, Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this earth. He came to reveal the statutes and judgments of God. And do you know what Jesus defines or describes as for judgment he came into the earth? He healed the blind guy. Those who think they see God accurately, that are calling God the destroyer, they're going to be shown to be blind. And those who didn't see God, they're going to have sight. They're going to see the goodness of God. What did Jesus do? Here I am, I'm God, that you might know the goodness in God's heart for you. He heals the blind guy. He goes on to say, it's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. When I am come, I am come to give you a life that abounds over sin and death. He's God. He just stood up in the temple and said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the word about God. So for judgment, Jesus came into the earth to reveal the goodness in God's heart for us, to reveal he's not the one stealing and killing and destroying us, to reveal he's not the condemner, he's the justifier, to reveal he's not the punisher, he's the healer. He's not the one that condemns the ungodly. He's the one that justifies the ungodly. Wasn't the woman caught in adultery ungodly? Well, what did Jesus do with her? He justified her from the accusation. That's the judgment he came into the earth to reveal. That God's the justifier of the ungodly, not the condemner. The statutes and judgments. Let's read it together. Deuteronomy 6. I hate to just read the scriptures. I don't want the scriptures to get in the way of what we believe. That was one of the guy at the Bible college I went to. That was one of his favorite sayings. People just don't want to let the word of God get in the way of what they want to believe. The sad thing is, is I find that most of the things taught in that school get in the way of what the word of God says. (laughs) It's just like the carnal mind, right? We're, we're, We're making fun of the carnal mind, not people. Every single one of us has been in the place where we let what we believe get in the way of what the word says. And so that just makes us the same. But let us walk out of that. Here's Deuteronomy 6, right after he talked about walking in the statutes and judgments of God. And when thy son, Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, and when thy son asks thee in, in the time to come, saying, what mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgment which the Lord our God hath commanded you? When your kids come and ask you, what do these things mean? What the statutes and judgments of God are? Then shall you say unto your son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed great signs and wonders, great and sore, upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. If you go back and read Exodus 12, it says that God judged the gods of Egypt. The great signs and wonders that God showed in Egypt was to demonstrate that the gods they were worshiping, the gods they built with their own hands, couldn't serve with life. They could only serve with death. And so God showed great signs and wonders to bring those gods out into the open where everybody could see them. So everybody could see the gods that Egypt was worshiping have a plague in their hand to give. And that the gift God has in his hand to give 
was what? To deliver them from the bondage. So their gods give a plague. Yahweh delivers you from bondage. That's what Deuteronomy 6 is saying. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. Now he says what the statutes are. To fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. Do you know what it is for your fear to be before the Lord? It means for you to stand in awe of his goodness towards you. It means for you to stand in awe of the life he has in himself. It means for you to stand in awe at the strength of his hand. And it means for you to not stand in awe of the death that's in the world and the works of your own hands. That's what it means. So there's Deuteronomy saying, tell your son when he asks you what these statutes mean, tell them they're about you being reminded of the might of God's hand to deliver you from Egypt and that you would have your fear or your trust in him always and not the works of your own hands. See how those statutes were meant to lead them to the place where they had one God, the Lord their God, and they cried out, Abba? You see how it was supposed to lead them to the place where they would cry out, Abba? Abba? Walking in the statutes and judgments of God is crying out, Abba? Okay. Reset. Ezekiel 36. The Spirit of God, the Spirit God gives us, will cause us to walk in the statutes of judgments of God. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 8? He says in Romans 8, God has not given us a spirit of fear, again unto bondage, but he has given us the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit. Like I said earlier, the spirit of fear is the old spirit. The spirit of adoption is the new spirit. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8 that Ezekiel 36 says. Paul says God has given us a new spirit, the spirit of adoption. This new spirit will reveal the Father's love for us. That's why Paul says nothing shall separate me from the love of God. This new spirit will show me that when I encounter death, that death hasn't come by the hand of God. That death hasn't come from God's dissatisfaction with me. That death has come from the world. And God is with me to serve me with the life that overcomes death. So Paul says this new spirit, it reveals the love the Father has for us. And he goes on to say that that spirit leads us to the place where we cry out, Abba. That, we could say it this way. The spirit of adoption causes you to walk in the statutes and judgments of God. And do you know what the statutes and judgments of God are? I'm your father. That spirit will cause you to see God your father. And it will lead you to the place where you cry out Abba when you're desiring life. When you sit in a world where you need life, you'll see God's the giver of life and you'll see his heart's filled with love for you. And so you will commit your desire for peace and love and joy and justice and all those other things. You'll commit it into God's hands just like Jesus did on the cross. You guys see that? The Spirit leads us to the place where we cry out, Abba. What did Deuteronomy 6 say was walking in the judgments and statutes of God? Have one God, the Lord your God, and not have any other gods. You know what causes you to have another God? 
if you think God is serving you with death. If you think God is serving you with death, you're going to be like the first Adam that has other gods trying to clothe himself with life. Jesus walked in the statutes and judgments of God on the cross. What did he do on the cross? He cried out, Abba, didn't he? Didn't he say, into your hands I commit my desire for life? Abba? That was walking in the statutes and judgments of God. That's Deuteronomy 6 manifested in Jesus. He had one God, the Lord his God. He had no other gods. He didn't look to the works of his own hands when he was naked on a cross needing to be clothed. He didn't look to his own strength to come down off of the cross. What he did was he saw God was jealous over his life, which is what Deuteronomy 6 talks about. God is jealous over our lives. So he sat in a place where he needed life, but he saw God was jealous over his life. He saw God had a zeal to serve him with life. He saw God would give him the life that he needed, the peace that he needed, the love that he needed, the comfort that he needed, the justice that he needed. He saw God was the one that could give him all those things. And what he saw about God led him to the place where he walked in the statutes and judgments of God, he cried out, Abba. You want to know how you love God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength? Cry out, Abba. That's it. That's what God's trying to bring forth in you. That's why he gives you a new heart and a new spirit, that you would know him as Abba. <laughs> That's the whole point he's trying to make. So God could have just as easily said through Ezekiel, I will give unto you Jesus. He will be unto you a new heart and a new spirit. As the scripture says, Jesus was raised a life-giving spirit. This Jesus I will give you, he will sanctify my name in the earth. And this will lead you to the place where you cry out, Abba, and commit your desire for life into my hands. When you can see that I'm jealous over your life, when you see I have a zeal for your life, when you see that I'm set apart to saving you from death and giving you life, you will have one God, the Lord your God. You will see I am the God that you need, and you will receive strength to live as my people. Meaning, your flesh will be put to rest. You will be made to lie down in the tender green grass. And the reason you'll be made to lie down in the tender green grass is you'll see the table that God has prepared for you in the midst of the death in the world. You'll see God has prepared a table full of life. And when you see that table of life in front of you, you know what your heart's going to cry out? Abba. You'll be put to rest by his love for you. He, he leads you to cry out Abba by preparing a table for you. He, he, the statute and judgment is for you to know he loves you. That's how you walk in it. And he doesn't even tell you to just know I love you. He shows you and produces it in you. That's the new heart. That's the new spirit. That's what it means to walk in the statutes and judgments of God. And God gives you his spirit, the spirit that contains the work he performed in Christ, so that that spirit can show you the goodness in his heart for you. So you see his goodness clearly. And in seeing his goodness clearly, you say, Abba, into your hands I commit my life. If you, if you are experiencing injustice in the world, from your job, from relationships, from, from anything, your government, from, from COVID, if you're, if you're experiencing injustice in the world, the world is trying to get you to have other gods other than the Lord your God. God has the justice you desire. 
He's given you the justice you desire in what he's done in Jesus. Commit your desire for justice into his hand and don't look to your own hand. If you desire peace, if you desire love, if you desire joy, don't look to the things in the world around you. Don't look at the relationships you have with people. Don't look at how they behave as if they're the ones that are in the way of you having the peace and the love and the joy you have. That's having other gods other than the Lord your God. He has the peace, the love, the joy you desire in his hand. That's what it means to cry out, Abba. We spend so much time talking about being cleansed by the blood. And we don't have any idea what that means. We think it means God's not mad at us anymore. And that's why we're still walking around offended all the time with people. That's why we're still walking around blaming everybody for the peace we don't have. That's why we walk around blaming the world for our hard times. Because we don't understand that what it means is the blood cleansed us from the death that's in the world. It cleansed us from the life that's but dust. And it braided us together with a life that has a heavenly, of a heavenly substance. The peace that's found in the life of God, it don't need people to act right for you to have it. If you're busy with the kind of peace that is at the mercy of the behavior of the people in your life, you ain't busy with the peace of God. And so what you might want to do, and we've all had to come to this place. I had to, it was a painful thing for me. I'm stubborn. Come to the place where you realize that you're looking to worldly things for peace. You're making other people you're God. God doesn't need people in your life to behave properly to give you peace. If he did, he wouldn't be God. Right? God didn't need the people at the cross with Jesus to behave right for him to comfort Jesus. He didn't say, well, if we can get these guys not to nail you to the tree, then you can have peace. What he said was, my life contains a peace that even our people nailing you to a tree, it will still produce peace in you. Right? Glory to God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you made it real clear that you're the Father that we need, that you have the life that we need, that you're the only one that has a peace that isn't at the mercy of the corrupt things we encounter in this world. Thank you, Father, that you've poured out your Spirit, that your Spirit dwells in us, that your Spirit is all the time healing our blindness, all the time popping open our eyes, revealing the goodness in your heart for us, revealing to us that the life we desire is found in you and what you've done in Jesus, that the peace we desire is not hid in the circumstances we encounter in this world, but the peace we desire is hid in you, in your son Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you for letting me preach so long. You guys are awesome. I love all of you.